Good morning, uh, Harvest. It is um, yeah, such a, a blessing to be able to uh, gather together in this way. Uh, I know there's a lot of uh, just thoughts and, and feelings that are kind of going on uh, in our minds and in our hearts as we uh, gather this Sunday morning. I think two of the, probably two of the bigger emotions that we're facing at this time are uh, fear and anxiety. And I think a couple of the reasons why, um, pretty simple, um, and if I could just kind of make some, some big global remarks here, um, like general remarks, um, probably one of the main reasons why we're afraid and why we're anxious is because we've never like, been in this place before. Um, none of us, um, at least probably most of us in, in our congregation, have never lived through a global pandemic of, of this uh, scale, of this size, of this scope, of this magnitude. Uh, we've not <clears throat> faced things like this. We've, we've seen and heard about uh, localized epidemics here and there, but nothing uh, on, a, on a global level in this way. And because we've never seen it before, uh, a lot of the language that we're hearing is these are unprecedented times. Like there's no precedent for what we're going through, what we're dealing with. And, and because we've not seen it before, um, it's difficult for us to know what to do. And so uh, understandably, there's fear. Understandably, uh, there's a lot of panic that goes along with it. On the flip side, it's not just because we've never seen this in the past, but the reason for our anxiety is because we don't know how long this is going to last. We don't know what the future is going to hold. We don't know how many more days we'll be in this situation. We don't know when we'll go back to school. We don't know when we'll go back to work. We don't know who else is going to get this virus. If, if professional athletes, if Oscar-winning actors and, and actresses are not immune from this, then the anxiety that fills our hearts um, comes because we don't know what's next, who's next. We don't know if it's our family member. We don't know if it's us. We don't know if it's somebody that we love, we care about. And so anxiety comes because of the future. And typically, um, maybe a biblical way to see anxiety is to imagine the future without God in it. Isn't that why we get anxious? Because we're not sure that come tomorrow... God is going to be there for me. That's why we get anxious when we don't have a job. We get anxious if we're uh, single past a certain uh, age. It's why we get anxious when we're about to take an exam because part of us wonders if I get to this uh, place tomorrow or five years later, ten years later, and God's not there, then what's going to happen? Uh, That's the heartbeat of anxiety is to imagine our future without God in it which is why it's so important um, in times like this for us to lift our eyes upwards to see God. That's why um, it's an amazing thing for us to worship together in this way. We need each other, but more than needing each other simply, uh, we need God. We need to lift our eyes above and to see that the God of our yesterdays is going to be the God of our tomorrow. Because though these are unprecedented times for us as individuals, as families, as a church, as a nation, as a world, this may be unprecedented to us. We've never seen things like this before. But the greater reality is that it's not unprecedented to God. God was not caught off guard by the coronavirus beginning to spread throughout the world. He was not caught off guard by COVID-19 as the virus begins to to take its root in the lives of people. God was not caught off guard by this. This is not an unprecedented thing to him because you know that God from eternity past into eternity future will, has, always will be God. Age to age he stands. Uh, Time is in his hands, the beginning and the end, and he is the author of life who holds our world, our lives, our church, our future, our past, our present, all these things in the palm of his hands. And because he does, uh, we can trust him. That's why even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances in life, 
there is a deep underwriting peace that passes and transcends anyone's ability to understand because we know the God who holds our future and it's not us. And so because God has been there, uh, we can trust him with it. And because God has been there and seen it, uh, he tells us how we ought to respond to it. And so today I want to look at 2 Chronicles chapter 7. We're going to read verses 13 through 15. This was written uh, centuries and centuries ago, about 2,900 years before our day. It was written to the people of God to describe a situation that would come in their lives as well as in our lives when times go from good to bad and from bad to worse. And we're going to see what God's word for us is today as we read from Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 through 15. Um, in the context, uh, King David, whose desire was to build a temple, a dwelling place for God, uh, that desire was Uh, That dream, that desire was deferred because David was a man of war, and so God gave that blessing and that privilege to David's son, Solomon. Solomon has just finished building the temple, the dwelling place of God, and he's dedicated it to God, and God was pleased with it, and God was happy with it. And then in response to uh, the prayer of Solomon dedicating the temple, these are God's words um, in chapter 7, verse 13. He says, when I shut up the heavens... So that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open, and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. This is God's word. What God is saying is, even though things are going well right now, Solomon, uh, there will be times in your life and there will be times in the history of my people where things aren't going so well. And in times like that, when there's no rain, when locusts devour the land, when there's a plague among my people, This is what you ought to do. Because here's human nature. Human nature in times where uh, we're fearful, we're afraid, or we have no idea what to do, in times where we're not in control, human nature is to look for somebody to blame. And you've seen that a lot. I've seen that a lot in the midst of this coronavirus as it spreads throughout the world. People are looking for someone to blame. Oh, it's those stupid bats, and, and, and we blame the bats. Oh my gosh, it's the people who eat the bats. How could they even do such a thing? That's terrible. We blame the the bat-eating people, or we blame the country next door to them because of this cult that spread all this disease to all these other people, and we blame them. We blame a million different people that we can point a finger to. We look on the news, and we look at people who are parting it up on beaches on spring break, and we're like, oh my gosh, they're the problem. I can't believe they're doing that. We we point a finger at the the people who are hoarding toilet paper, and what good is toilet paper anyways? How is that going to save you? And By the way, if you stocked up on toilet paper, then um, your responsibility and duty is to tie your toilet paper to our church because we may need it. Uh, But it's the people who are hoarding all of these different things. There's a million people that we can point our finger at. But God's word definitively says when you go through times like this where you don't know what to do and you don't know why this is happening and you're looking for someone to blame, God's word gives us three words, three words, three thoughts that help us to know how we ought to respond in times like this. And here's the first thing. The first thing is it starts with us. 
We want to point a finger at somebody. We want to say who's to blame. God says, hey, 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 don't go around looking for people to blame, but start with yourself. This is what he says. When I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain, command locusts to devour the the land or send a plague among my people, here's what he says. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. He says the first thing that we need to do when things go from bad to worse and all around us things are going crazy, he says, hey, let's start with the people of God. See, in those days, it was not difficult to tell if God was happy with a group of people, his people, the Israelites, or if he was upset with them. It was very simple. Here's how you could tell. In the Old Testament times, because the people of God were localized in one nation, it was very simple. If God was happy with the Israelites, then you would see blessings in both nature and in war. Okay, that means uh, the rains would fall, there would be a good harvest, there would be, everything would be going well, and then in war, the Israelites would win their battles, they would be victorious against the enemies. That's how you knew God was happy with his people in the Old Testament. How did you know that God was upset with the people of God? Because there were curses in both nature and war. That means there's famine, there's drought, there's no rain, there's a bad crop, locusts eat the crop, um, they lose all of their battles. That's how you know it's very simple and it was very clear because the people of God were localized in one nation. This is the nation of Israel. God's blessings and curses were seen in nature and in war. Today, it's not that cut and dry because the people of God are not centralized in one location. And so we cannot say that the coronavirus is God's judgment on Korea or China or Italy or on America. We cannot say that because God's people are not localized in one nation. But what we can say is that when things like this happen, God's word for the people of God is that responsibility begins with us. We need to begin to look inward, and it starts here. It's easy for us to say, well, it's because the Republicans are doing this or because the Democrats are doing this or because of the immoral people or because of the people who don't know God. It's because of the people who are living in sin. It's because of their idolatry. It's because America has turned away from God. He says, no, 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 no. Here, in other words, the solution to the challenges that are afflicting the church have nothing to do with what's going on out there, but he says it begins here in my house. He says when you begin to experience these kinds of things, unlike anything you've seen before, he says, if my people who are called by my name, who are those people? There it was the Israelites. Here it's the church. Because we're the people of God who bear the name of God. It's the ones who call ourselves the children of God. It's the ones who call ourselves the family of God. It's the ones who bear the name of the Savior Jesus. He says, if you, if my people who are called by my name will first humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn away from their wicked ways, it's not, the problem is not out there. The problem is in here and judgment begins in the house of God. That's what he's saying. First Peter 4.17, he makes that clear. The judgment begins with my people, is what God is saying. What does that look like? Well, I I think we all know that within our families, as a parent, as a father, I hold my children to standards that are different from the standards of other children. So there are certain rules in, in my home that we enforce, and one of those rules is you don't drink soda if you're a child. And if you do, you ask for permission, and if you do, it's got to be a special occasion. You don't just go to the refrigerator and open up a can of Coke and begin to drink it. So you can imagine uh, my family, we'll we'll choose Elijah, he's a boy, and he's the one in our family amongst our kids who love drinking soda. 
He's always asking, we're always telling him no, but he loves to drink soda. So one day he has a sleepover and he invites his friend, and his friend comes from a family where their house rules say, you can drink soda whenever you want. And so uh, this kid comes to sleep over at our house, and after mom and dad have gone to bed and sisters have gone to bed, this boy says to Elijah, he says, Elijah, can you go get me a Coke from the refrigerator because I'm thirsty? And Elijah says, no, you can't do that. You're not allowed to drink Coke. Coke is only for special occasions, and we have to ask mom and dad for it. And the boy says, no, I don't have to ask mom and dad. We drink Coke all the time in my house. Sometimes I drink Coke with two hands. I drink one Coke in one hand and a Dr. Pepper in the other hand. We can drink Coke all we want. We drink Coke as much as we drink water. And Elijah says, no, that's not right. You can't do that. And the boy says, well, don't get it for your... I'm not asking you to drink it for yourself. I'm just asking you to get it for me. Come on, I'm your guest in your home. And so Elijah says, okay, fine, I'll get it for you. And he gets a Coke and he gives it to him. And this boy is drinking it and he loves it. He's like, oh my gosh, and Elijah's being tempted. This is the best Coke I've ever had in my life. Oh my, Elijah tries him. He's like, no, I can't, I can't, I'm not allowed to. And finally he gives into the pressure and he drinks the Coke. And he's like, oh my goodness, knowing that the forbidden nectar of the gods was something he should not be drinking. He begins to feel a tinge of guilt in him. But the temptation is too strong, and he says, can I have just a little bit more? By the time they're done, they've guzzled three cans of Coke and three cans of Dr. Pepper, and they're bouncing off the walls like they're Sonic the Hedgehog, and they're going crazy until finally they fall asleep. But before they did, unbeknownst to them, they have wrecked the entire house. So I'm sleeping. I wake up the next morning, and I come out, and I see that the house has been trashed. And I have reason to believe that soda was a factor in the crime as I see crushed cans of Coke and Dr. Pepper all around. So when the kids wake up, I say, Elijah, I need to talk to you. He's like, why, Dad? And I point around to the cans of soda that have been emptied out, and he's like, Dad, Dad, but it wasn't me. Trust me, I promise you, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. It was, it was him. It was my friend. He's the one who told me to do it. I said, Elijah. He doesn't know the rules of our home. He may be able to drink those things in, in his house, but you know that you're not allowed to drink it in our house because you're my son and you're in my home. You know the rules. You know the rules. And he says, but dad, why don't you yell at my friend? Why don't you yell at him? Because I say, Elijah, because you're my son. Because you bear my name. You know my rules. You know what I expect out of you. And judgment begins first with my own house because you should have known better than to follow the ways of another household. God is saying this is the same thing. When my house is in disarray, it's easy for us to begin to point fingers at other people and say it's because of them, it's because of them, it's because of these people, because of these insolent people, because of these sinners, because of these obstinate people. God says, let's begin in the house of God. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. Could it be that all along, God has been wanting to clean his house and to purify his house, but we were unwilling to hear the message of God, and so it took a virus to sweep through the world in order for us to finally begin to realize what God is wanting us to hear. I'm not saying that God is bringing this upon us but I am saying that the word of God makes it clear that when times like this happen, there's a message that God is wanting to communicate first to his people so that we might communicate this to the world. 
I don't often yell at my kids. I get angry at them. I scold them, but I don't often yell at them. But there are times where I have. It's times where they're in danger. It's in times where it's urgent. Or it's in times of desperation that I need to yell at them. Put that knife down. Step away from the fire. Don't cross the road. Grab that last roll of toilet paper. In times of desperation or urgency or danger, these are times where I might yell at my kids because these are times where I need to get their attention. And C.S. Lewis says that God shouts through the pain that is inflicted upon a world that he wants to bring back to himself. Could it be that God is trying to get our attention through this coronavirus in order that his message to us would be, it starts with you as my people. It starts with you as a church. It starts with you as my people. That's the first thing, okay, first thing that we see. But what does it start with? What does that mean for it to begin with us? The second thing that we see is that it begins with us praying. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. God is making it very clear that these things that we see are not the only things that define your reality. That here's what, what Tony Evans said. He said, if what you see is all you see, then you're not seeing all that you need to see. There's a deeper reality at work. Ephesians says this battle is not flesh and blood. There's a deeper spiritual reality that undergirds everything that happens in this life. When um, my, my mother, who's been going to church ever since she was saved in about 40 years, she said last Sunday, with tears, she said this was the saddest Sunday of my life, that I could not go to the house of God and worship with my church. I heard someone else say that um, their elderly mother in Korea, 70, 80 years old, she said, I've lived through... Uh, the war that divided our nation in half. I've lived through all of the things that, uh, all of the threats, and not once in my life have I ever heard of the church closing down until the coronavirus began to sweep through our nation. She said, this is a sad and sad, sad time in our nation's existence as a church. I wonder if at some level the enemy might be gloating over this. And thinking, the, 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 the Savior that they believe said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church, but look at what I've done. I've shut down the church in some of the most Christianized nations in the world. But what the enemy didn't see is that we can leverage technology to continue to meet in this way. But I think what we're also seeing is that even in the midst of churches being shut down, there's one thing. There's one weapon in the arsenal of the people of God that will never be taken from us. And it's the most powerful thing that we have at our disposal, and it's the weapon of prayer. God says here, in the midst of all of the hardship that happens, when the heavens are shut up so that there's no rain, when locusts devour the land and you have nothing to eat, when a plague comes against my people, when these kinds of things happen, God says, here's your weapon. Here's the most important thing that you can do. The one thing at your disposal that nothing can take away is the power of God coming to his people, coming to the land in prayer. 
God says, nothing, no one can ever take this from you. If you've got coronavirus and you're lying on your deathbed, you still have the power of God in prayer. If you're young, if you're three years old and you've got no ability to do anything else, you cannot cook a meal for your house church, you can't summarize a sermon for your house church, you can't read the scripture for your Sunday school class, you can still pray. Doesn't matter how young you are, doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter how sick you are, doesn't matter how isolated you are, no matter where you are, no matter who you are, if you're a child of God, even if you're, if you're uh, mentally ill, you're physically ill, you're spiritually ill, the one thing that all of us can do is we can pray. And God says, this is the greatest weapon that I've given to my people in times like this. And so when affliction comes against the world, God says it starts with us and it starts with us praying. Think about, think about what we leave in the heavenly realms if we are doing everything during this quarantine season short of praying. We could be watching our TV shows. We could be studying a new language. We could be exercising. We could be uh, brushing up on, on our multiplication tables. Whatever the things are that we could be doing, think about all the things that we're leaving if we're doing all those things but lacking in prayer. Throughout the Bible, we see a nine-word prayer lifted up in the book of Joshua, and the sun was stopped. We see in the Gospels a leper uttering two sentences, and leprosy is cured. We see in, in Luke 23, a thief on a cross just saying a few words to Jesus in prayer, and his soul his eternity is flipped upside down where he was, on a, the, the, uh, he was destined for hell. All of a sudden, Jesus says, the moment you die, you're going to be with me in paradise. There's power that God says you have not wielded if you have not picked up the weapon of prayer. Right? This is not something that people outside the church can do. This is a weapon that has squarely been placed in the hands of God's people, his children who bear his name. And he says, this is what I'm calling you to do. It begins with you, and it begins with you praying. Will you, as the people of God, will you as a church, stand in the gap between the living and the dead? There are medical workers who are desperately in need of our prayers right now. There are people who are sick, who are desperately in need of our prayers right now. There are family members who are fearing the lives, fearing for the, fearing for the health of people that they love, who are in desperate need of our prayers right now. There are nations, there are scientists, there are people who are trying to come up with a, a vaccine for this illness who are desperately in need of our prayers. This is the greatest thing that we have in our hands because when we work, we work. Many a great man or woman has said, but when we pray, God begins to work. And in times like this where we're powerless to do anything, prayer is our sign of desperate humility of absolute and utter dependence upon the Lord God. It's our number one way of lifting our eyes up to heaven and saying, God, we need you. We need you to enter into these places. We're desperately in need of you. <clears throat> and the question is, are you willing to stand between the living and the dead? What good is it, Jesus says, for a person with COVID-19 to recover from that to gain 20 more years, 30 more years, 40 more years of life on planet Earth, and then to forfeit his soul. Will you stand in the gap now 
between the living and the dead. In number 16, you see the people of God beginning to grumble against God and against their leaders. And, and, and God says, step away from these people because I'm going to wipe them out. And a plague begins to come and people begin dying by the tens, by the hundreds, by the thousands. Countless people are dying. And Moses and Aaron say, we need to stand in the gap between the living and the dead. And so they lit a, a censer of sacrifice and they ran in the middle and they stood between the living and the dead as the plague was passing by. And they stood in the place where it was coming and it says the plague stopped. Number 1648. Would you be one of the people who would be willing to run in the midst, spiritually in the midst of those who are dying, and to stand between the living and the dead in order that the death might stop? Because this is a time, if there ever has been, for the church to awaken and to arise and to wield the weapon of prayer. I've been um, really praying and and meditating through a song this past week, ever since uh, last Sunday morning. It was a song that came out in the 1990s when I was in college. Um, the song is called Save Us, O God. And it's a, cry, it's a heart cry for revival in our land. And the song begins by saying, um, we confess the sins of a nation. Lord, we are guilty of a prayerless life. He goes on and he he talks about how uh, we've turned away our hearts from your laws. Uh, We've taken for granted your unchanging grace. Is that the cry of the church today? He says, goes on and, and he sings, you said that if we'd humble ourselves and begin to pray that you would hear from heaven and heal, uh, and and cleanse us with your rain. And the chorus says, don't pass us by. Don't pass us by. Let this be the generation. Let this be the generation uh, that lifts your name through all the world. Save us, O God. Save a people for yourself, O Lord. Let the fear of the Lord be their standard. Save us, O God. Save us from our unfaithfulness. Cleanse us from our unfaithfulness. Let the place where we live be called the house of prayer. And it begins with us, and it begins in prayer, and God is calling us back to that place. It's the second thing that we see here. The third thing that we see begins with us, it begins with prayer, and then it begins with repentance. If my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Um, This word, they will seek my face, literally means it's saying we want to renew intimacy with you, God. And to turn from their wicked ways is the word for repentance. He said that you would turn from your wicked ways. I think that the message of God through this virus for the church is, would you turn from your wicked ways and would you seek the face of God again? 
See, the challenge is when a watching world who does not know God looks at the people of God who bear his name and they see no difference between them and us, then what witness is there in the world as the church of Jesus Christ? If the salt loses its saltiness, what can be done in order for the salt to be renewed in its purpose? Jesus says if the salt is no longer salty, then it just needs to be thrown out and trampled by men. But what God is saying is would you come back to embrace who you are as the salt of the earth, the preserving agent in a world that is dying and decaying? Would you rise up and embrace your call again as the light of the world? He's not saying you will be the light of the world when you do these things. He says you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. He's saying this is who you are. But the question is, does the world see that in the way that we live? David Kinnaman in his book, Unchristian, says that 85% of non-Christians said they know a person who says they're a Christian, but only 15% of these unbelievers say there's a difference in how they live versus the way that I live. If only 15% of the world sees a difference between Christians, then it is time for us to repent and turn back to God so that our purpose in this world could be renewed once again. See, we've twisted our values. We've taken for granted his unchanging grace. And we said, God, we can live however we want as long as at the end of the day we come back to you in repentance. And God is saying, listen, if I shut up the heavens, if these things happen that are unexplainable and you have no ability in and of yourselves to fix, then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, if there's no difference between the church and the world when it comes to how we cheat in school, when there's no difference between the church and the world in our morality, in our incidences of premarital sex, in what we do with our taxes and how we spend our time and how we spend our money and the things that we look at on the internet, if there's no difference between the church and the world, then is it not incumbent upon us to heed these words and to hear what God is saying. We've become so good at coming to God in forgiveness after we sin and justifying it by saying, we're not going to be perfect. Christians aren't perfect. We're just forgiven. But the reality is, as the people of God, though we're not called to be sinless, we ought to sin less and less the more we walk with Jesus. The challenges and the, and, the, and the place we've been outed is that we play when it comes to our worship. We work when it comes to our play, and we worship when it comes to our work. We've got our values all mixed up and twisted. And God says, would you come back to my heart? See, I think when we look back At the year 2020, in the annals of history, I think there's one narrative that will run straight through it, overshadowing uh, the wildfires in, in Australia, overshadowing the death of Kobe Bryant. I think the greater narrative is going to be this is the year that the coronavirus swept throughout the world. But I wonder if we heed the words of God, if the narrative could be changed, 
that yes, a coronavirus swept through the world, but so too did an awakening in the church of Jesus Christ, where the church began to awaken and arise and take seriously the call of God to humble themselves and pray and seek the face of God and say, Lord, we fall on our knees and we repent of our sin. God, have mercy on us. Renew us. Do it again. Let this be the generation that lifts up your name in all the world. Could it be that the year 2020 could be a year that running parallel to the story of the coronavirus, there is a new story that says a revival began to break forth and it began with the church awakening. And as a result, countless people came to the saving knowledge of Jesus. Here's what 2 Chronicles 7 is making absolutely clear, is that there is a great danger in the physical realm, but the greater danger is in the spiritual realm. God is a whole lot more concerned about saving souls than he is about healing cells. And that's what he makes clear here. That, yeah, the coronavirus is deadly and it's dangerous, but beware of a greater virus that afflicts every man and every woman and every boy and every girl, every person who's ever breathed this air. The greater virus is the virus of sin. And if that's not eradicated, it doesn't matter. All of the technological advances, all the medical advances that happen to cure this disease and any other disease on this that affects the physical, the greater disease that we need to seek is in the spiritual. Like many of you, I've been looking at different articles and posts and videos, and one of the best videos that I saw um, this week was of one of the makeshift, ho- makeshift hospitals in Wuhan, China. It was one of the first that were created as Wuhan was the epicenter of the outbreak in that region. And in order to manage the patient load, um, these different hospitals were set up in order to be able to, to take care of as many people as they could. And because of preventive measures and because of the different things that are happening in order to slow the spread of the virus, um, now that hospital was able to be shut down. And so in this video, it had on the stairs outside of that hospital, it had many of the doctors and the nurses who had been working and serving tirelessly in that hospital. They had their face masks on, and from the bottom all the way up to the top, one by one, it showed them taking off their mask and throwing it down for the first time. And as people who had only seen them with a mask on see their faces unveiled, a big smile comes across every face as they take off their mask and put it down, and they smile. And it was them saying, these masks are no longer needed. This hospital is no longer needed because here where we live, the virus is dying. One day, God's people, who are called by his name, are going to go to a place where we will take off the masks where no longer do we need to be sterilized because of the sin in this world. We're going to take all of these things off and we're going to say, we don't need these anymore. We don't need hospitals anymore. We don't need sick beds anymore. We don't need medicine anymore because there will be a place once and for all where there will be no need for those because there will be no more sickness. There will be no more disease. In fact, there will be no more sin. There'll be no more dying. There'll be no more sadness of any sort and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. That's the greatest hope that this world 
needs, and that's the greatest hope that we have. Absolutely, we work and we pray and we do everything that we can in order that will be a cure for not only the coronavirus and COVID-19, but for every virus and every disease and every sickness. But even if the worst thing on this life afflicts us, we lift our eyes upwards because there's a greater reality that the worst thing that can happen in this life is the best thing that could happen to us because when we open our eyes after the short slumber that is death, we'll open our eyes and we'll be in the presence of the great physician, the one who entered into our world and gave his life for us, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who hung and he bled and he died in order that those who trust in him will one day be brought to that glorious home that he left long ago in order that we might be his brothers and sisters. This is the great and glorious hope of the gospel. And it's because of that, in order for that to spread through the ends of the earth, that God calls his people first to task. In the midst of the coronavirus, what do we do? We lift our eyes upwards, and as we do, what do we see and what do we hear? We hear that it starts with us. It starts with us praying. It starts with us repenting. And as we do, the hope of the world living in us, the hope of the world uh, proclaimed through us could reach the ends of the earth for the glory of God and for the blessing of the world. Let's pray together. As we respond to the word of God this morning, it starts with us. What is God speaking to you about? What are the areas in your life that you need to turn away from those things in order that you could seek the face of God? Where are the places where God is putting a finger on in your life? Is it the idolatry of your pleasure, of your comfort, the idolatry of wealth, the idolatry of security, the idolatry of significance, the idolatry of a dream, the idolatry of you fill in the blank for yourself. What is God saying to you that you need to surrender to him tonight, this morning? What are the things that God is calling you to lay down before him? What does it look like for you to repent and to turn from your wicked ways? We spend a minute praying. And this minute of praying is not the be-all, end-all. It's the beginning of a journey of repentance in order that God would heal our church. And through that, the world would see the hope of glory in us. Let's pray right now a prayer of repentance as a way of saying, Lord, this cannot end here. I need a lifestyle of repentance. I need to be changed. What more do you need to do short of sending a virus to impact the world in order for me to turn back to you, in order for a church, in order for God's people to turn back to him? Lord, would you hear us calling? Would you hear, would you allow us to hear you calling us that we would respond? in repentance and in faith. Let's pray in repentance and then let's pray for others for whom we need to stand in the gap. 
medical workers, the afflicted, the sick, caregivers, caretakers, the lost. Let's spend a few moments right now just praying, lifting these things up before the Lord. And then I'll pray on our behalf and we'll continue to worship the Lord. Father in heaven, we confess to you sins of our nation, sins of the church in our nation, the ways in which we've put other things before you, even in our church. Forgive us for making the name of a church, a ministry, an idea more important than Jesus and his gospel. Forgive us for seeking a cultural or comfortable or compromised Christianity over a Christ-like Christianity. Forgive us for pursuing wealth and fame and pleasure and comfort and popularity and pleasure than we've sought to walk the narrow road, the beautiful road marked with the scent of the gospel. Father, have mercy on us. Cleanse us. Teach us to pray, to repent, to turn back to you. Lord, may it begin with us. Father, spark a revival, spark a renewal in our day, in our time. Make your ways known. Will you not, Psalm 85, 6, revive us again? Lord, help us. We need you. We love you because you've loved us first. We trust you because you made the first move. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you so much. Be pleased now with the offerings that we bring to you and with our response in grace-driven, joyful obedience to the call mandated in Scripture. We love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.